everybody, and welcome to another edition of R2D2, the podcast modern orthodoxy and uh, lack of denominational labeling, as we'll see in a little bit. Um, uh, my name is Ruvain Spolter. I'm here with Harab Johnny Solomon and Rabbanit Mali Brovsky for our weekly discussion. And this week, of course, uh, the, the re religious world, the Jewish world, uh, finds itself uh, just a sort of at a loss with the sudden passing of, uh, of R Lord Rabbi Dr. Jonathan Sachs, who, uh, who I will say straight out, I did not know him at all personally. I was influenced by his teaching and his writing. And that being said, his, his passing really moved me. It, re it really affected me. And very few people, their presence in the world has that power over so many of us. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to turn to uh, Rab Johnny because Rab Johnny not only uh, has a British accent, but he actually was a Talmud of Rabbi Sachs. He was a, a protege of his. He knew him very well. Protege, let's not, let's not overdo it. I, I learned from him and I've had a privilege to teach some of his He learned ideas. from him and he had a privilege to teach some of his Torah. And, uh, and regular listeners of our podcast will know just how often uh, Rav Johnny uh, quotes Rabbi Sachs and the thoughts and uh, his, his depth of knowledge and his wisdom and his insights. So uh, we'll just turn it to Rav Johnny. Rav Johnny, share with us uh, who, who Rabbi Sachs was to you. Who was he to you? How did he, uh, how did he influence you? And how, how do you see uh, what his contribution was to the Jewish world and to the world at large? Take it away. Okay, so thank you for that introduction. And, and, and I'm pleased I made that clarification. You know, when a leader passes away, oftentimes uh, a lot of people wish to claim to be, you know, the Tom and Bufak. There are a number of people who spent many decades learning from him uh, and working with him. Uh, I didn't have quite that privilege, but I did have many, many encounters learning from Rabbi Sachs directly and uh, in contact with him and uh, more recently teaching his ideas on a formal basis in Midrashot, which led me to be even closer to him and his ideas. But I want to just take a step back and tell you who I think Rabbi Sachs was to people who knew him, which is when people reflect on his global contribution, his literary contribution, they use correctly, rightly, words like genius and brilliant, and he was a genius and he was utterly brilliant. But he came from relatively humble uh, uh, background. His family was traditionally observant. He didn't come f directly from a rabbinic family. His ancestors were, were from kin. Uh, and he grew up in a fairly traditional place in a fairly traditional way. And I wish to stress that because that many people in Anglo Jewry kind of had a similar upbringing to him. We're a relatively small community uh, of which only a very, very thin part are observant. But because of the United Synagogue, even those who aren't that observant have a certain respect for, uh, did I say United Servant? I mean United Synagogue, uh, had a certain respect for um, traditions and observance. But what happened in terms of his journey, uh, I think, resonates to many other people too. He went to school, he didn't go to a, a Jewish high school, and he went to university, he was highly intelligent, went to Cambridge, and as he's told the story many times, uh, during that period of time, trying to explore philosophy, general philosophy and Jewish philosophy, 
he made a decision to meet two great Jewish leaders. One was Rabbi Joseph Ber Soloveitchik, and one was Menachem Mendel Schnitz and the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And that encounter, especially with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, changed his life. Because rather than simply answering the questions Rabbi Sachs had, he nudged him, he pushed him, he encouraged him to take responsibility for what was going on in his, uh, amongst his peers, amongst the students of Cambridge. And from then on, Rabbi Sachs learnt the message, which is leadership is about taking responsibility. Leadership is recognizing that who you are doesn't necessarily mean who you need to be. It's about having a mission and growing. And Rabbi Sachs, over a period of time, growed. He changed. He metamorphosized from being an academic, uh, an intellectual with a commitment to tradition to a person who was focused on uh, a mission to make the world a better place, to try and bring a better love of Torah and a better recognition of God to anglo Jewry and eventually beyond. And one of the reasons I think a lot of us are moved by his story is he didn't grow up from the classic rabbinic family. He didn't grow up automatically going to yeshiva and knowing how to live his life. He's somebody who uh, heard a call and stood up and followed God to a, uh, to a, through the wilderness to a place that was yet unfamiliar to him. Gani, do you know uh, if he, when he went, decided to go to yeshiva? Because I look, reading his biography, it seems that he first went to university and did his doctorate and what have you. Was he learning along, like all along or did he at some point say, I've got to When go. he was in university, then he took out, I think, a, time, a year to go to the yeshiva and then then he finished his university studies, and then from then on, um, not long afterwards, uh, not immediately, but not long afterwards, we were blessed in Anglo Jewry that the head of Jewish college was Nachman Binovich. Um, and so he became Rabbi Sachs's formal religious teacher and guide. Of course, not so long ago, Rav Nachum also passed away. And it was from him you that... Mean after he finished his PhD, after he finished, or that was later? I can't remember the time enough by I'm, heart. I'm just, Apologize. like, the, the combination is unique, and I'm going to come back to this later. Well, well it's interesting. Well, I, I, would, I would absolutely say the combination immaterial, I say apologies for those who are more expert than I, in terms of remembering the timeline. But for Rabbi Sachs, the notion of dividing the university and yeshiva was... Uh, a separation of self, and he strongly believed in the unification of what he called Torah v'chokhmah. He believed that actually the university should be a place where we ask tough questions, and those should be questions about faith, and the yeshiva should be a place where we use disciplines to think about meaning, to think about texts, and to think about purpose. So though a lot of people often refer to the university and the yeshiva as being separate worlds, he, within his, that period of growth, where he intertwined university studies and a bit of yeshiva and then completed the academic studies, and then more Torah learning, was demonstrative of that whole total personality that a lot of people have then uh, got to know in Rabbi Sachs, both in terms of what he spoke and also what he wrote, where you'd see interwoven on any page a quote from a pasuk, uh, a gemara, a rambam, uh, or a profound philosopher. Um, and that really exemplifies what made him such a fascinating person. But the reason I began by talking about his family and his background, as I say, is that he went on a journey and was prepared to acknowledge uh, 
new ideas, was prepared to respond to challenges. He was prompted and, uh, and, and encouraged by a leader. And all of that that he went through, I think as somebody, and I was 15 when he became chief rabbi, and that means most of my youth uh, and, and adult life whilst I was living in the UK was within the you know, orbit in one respect or another of Rabbi Sachs. We learned to kind of hear how to do that too from him who'd done the same. He was a profound role model, not just to what we should do, but through what he did in terms of what we could do. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Can you share with, I would ask you, you knew him personally, and I did not, as I mentioned, know him personally. I've heard him speak, obviously. You get a sense of the person. Uh, do you have any kind of um, anecdote or, or something about the relationship that you had with him that you feel comfortable sharing with us? Feel free to say no. So firstly, again, I, I wish to reiterate, uh, and, and I, I believe truth is important, that... Yes, I, 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 uh, I had numerous interactions with him. Uh, the amount of one-on-one -on -one time I had with him was limited. Um, uh, uh, many, many people had a lot, lot more. Uh, and certainly the stories they can tell and the uh, experiences they had are worthy to be told. What I can say, though, is that he's somebody who helped a lot of people. You see... From a distance, you see, especially since he ceased being chief rabbi, or even when he was chief rabbi, and especially since beyond, this leading national figure, and then kind of the leading yeah, You see a speaker, figure. you see a figurehead. Right. Most of us don't All know the nitty-gritty of what it means to be the chief rabbi. Right. So first and foremost, being a nitty-gritty chief rabbi means actually being a rabbi's rabbi, dealing with some of the challenges that come up in communities, answering uh, questions from rabbis. I'll give you one example. I listened to it just this morning. Uh, a, a dear rabbi that I know called Rabbi Baruch Davis, um, he, he recorded a short re reflection on the loss of Rabbi Sachs, and, and he just gave a few examples how he, as a rabbi, would call Rabbi Sachs whenever he had a crisis or a query, wasn't really sure what to do. He talked about how uh, there'd been terrible events happening in Israel, and it was coming up to Sukkot. And he said, you know, how do I teach when we feel so low, right? And he got chizuk from Rabbi Sachs. You know, he talked about how do I inspire a bar mitzvah boy who three days beforehand was sitting shiva for his mother. And he got insight from Rabbi Sachs. And, and those are just two conversations of tens of thousands. And what Rabbi Sachs basically did and was to show the people he met kindness, gave them time, gave them chizak, gave them insight, gave them encouragement. And each of us, in our own way, and I certainly was a beneficiary of that, were deeply appreciative of the support. And it helped us find who we are today, just as the advice he got from the Lubavitcher Rebbe helped him do the same. Molly, your area um, of expertise, other than social work, is you've always been into Jewish philosophy and Jewish thought. And Rabbi Sachs, he, he developed, from what I understand, I'm not fully read in a lot of his writings, but a much broader view of Judaism. We are, we are so particular nowadays. We fight about such small things. And he was much more concerned, especially in his later years, with larger things. How, did you, how do you see him in the perspective and your understanding of his, of his worldview, of the, of the ideas in Jewish thought that you think that he brought to the world? and the influence that he had on the, on the broader world in general. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great way to frame it. I, I, I feel that when I, um, when I think about Rabbi Sachs, as you said, I think about my encounter with him through his writings. And what I find, uh, what I found when I, um, you know, through reading and learning Rabbi Sachs, it, it, the experience I had is an experience I've had with very few thinkers, which is that you read it and you're like, oh yes, that's the truth. Or that's what I know to be true in my heart. That resonates with me. I just didn't know how to articulate it. Mm. And Rabbi Katz has articulated it for me. And I think so many people, um, I think that's why he speaks to so many people. And by the way, I think his, his writings and his works have been taking off more and more. And I think we're losing him just, I don't want to say just as we need him the most, but just as his voice is becoming more and more understood and appreciated. And, and I guess our comfort can be that his books will still live on. And I think Midrashot and Yeshivot, both English-speaking and Hebrew-speaking, have discovered him and will continue to, to read him. Because I think especially for students at that age who are looking for meaning, that type, that skill to articulate very fundamental yet very profound truths um, is very rare. A few people had it. Rav Lichtenstein had it too. But the difference between, I think, the uniqueness... Rav Lichtenstein about, had it in a brisker way, in a exactly, longest kind of way. That's what I was going to say. The difference is not... Rav Soloveitchik, maybe also, but leave that aside. Um, no, Rav Sikhi, Rav Soloveitchik was is, in another universe. Exactly. The difference is anybody can pick up Rabbi Sachs and read him. But what's amazing is that that means somebody who's 18 um, and just starting out and somebody who's... 85 and has a doctorate in philosophy. They can both pick up his his works and find it to be rich and deep and meaningful and yet incredibly accessible. So I think that those are two things that I would say are very, that, that, that those are two things that were outstanding about Rabbi Sachs, his ability to really penetrate to deep truths, but to say them in a very, very accessible way. And again, to me, that's like very rare. That's C.S. Lewis, that's G.K. Chesterton. That th- those are people who there are not that many people in a generation in generations who are able to do that for the world. Um, and the, the and then I'm gonna and I agree with you that he didn't just speak to the Jewish world. He spoke to all denominations within the Jewish world, and he spoke beyond the Jewish world. And I think it's part of this is because he was able to hit accessible truths. But the other thing that I found so striking about Rabbi Sachs is that it's not that he just kind of spoke about universal truths that everybody accepts. He did that too, right? He could talk about the beauty of Judaism and, and you know, the mission of the Jewish people in the world and where anti-Semitism comes from. But he could also talk about things that were very timely um, on the world stage. And he could say things that weren't necessarily parv. He could say real profound things. This is something that Chaim Navon pointed out, or Sherlock pointed out. He could take a stand on... Um, the role of the family in the 20th century. He, his last book, Morality, right, is a very, um, I would say, that Johnny can back, back me up on this if he agrees. Um, there's a lot of indictment there uh, on, on modern trends in the world. He was not afraid to come out and critique societal trends, and he, he, would, he was very strong and very able to fight for a very particular worldview. And I think Rubio mentioned it before, this this particularism and nationalism and universalism, he was able to find a place for everything. But what's striking is that he was able to say very strong and sharp, profound things, and yet nobody found him. Again, maybe perhaps when he was chief rabbi, he had inter-rabbinic you know, issues would come up. But I'd say in these later years, 
he was not pegged as a controversial figure. He wasn't a figure of the left. He wasn't a figure of the right. He wasn't a figure of this denomination of Judaism or that denomination. Obviously, he stood for modern, you know, he stood for orthodoxy, but I don't even think he'd, he'd like to be called modern orthodox. He just wanted to be called the chief rabbi, and I think that's how he was viewed. And that, to me, is such a... I admire that skill more than anything. His ability to be, and again, Rav Shola pointed this out, na'imim habriot, universally accepted, universally um, um, loved, I would even say. It, it, you know, like, it, it, he, he wasn't a contentious figure. He was a figure that, that, that um, every, he was able to say things in a way that everybody could hear. Even if the thing he said was, was something that not everybody would have thought that they would agree with. And I think that that, I, I, that's a skill I haven't yet, and again, maybe one of you has a has a way to unpack. How did he do that? You know what I'm saying? How was he able to do that, to, to say things that were real and profound and, and and take strong positions on things, and yet be so universally loved, and, and say things in ways that people could really hear? And I think that that skill, to me, that's a loss, that we've lost that. That's a tremendous loss. And also, Rav well, said that. He's like, who's going to replace him now? Who can do that? Not well, that many... Yeah. So, so I just want to pick up on the impressions that I have. So the first thing that you immediately, first of all, I want to say that I think Rav Sachs, I can only speak about the time after he left being the chief rabbi, because that's really when he, I think that's really when he entered the public consciousness, when he went to YU for two years, when he started, like, you know, after, when he was really, I think, the first, I would say, perfect 21st century rabbi. Like he, his Parsha sheets, First of all, they were impeccably articulated. They were written carefully. It wasn't like a Dvar Torah. It was an essay. And, and people have an appreciation for something that's written well, you know, and the, the carefully written word, which is something that's almost a lost art nowadays. The, the packaging, and I would say, the packaging meaning his oratory, his, his command. He had a, literally a command of not only the English language, but the skill of speaking that you sat there, you listened to him, and how many people have you ever sat in front of and said, just don't stop, just, just keep, keep, keep giving me, because I, whatever you say, we'll, we'll, we'll be here. Like they say that literally about Rav Soloveitchik. Yeah, and about people, and Rav Chai, and, and Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik is like that too. Yeah, he could sit I, in his I, haven't class heard, for, I haven't heard lectures from him, I don't know. It, he, it, he could go on, and you could be terrified because you're afraid he's gonna call on you in class, but <laughs> you, it's, it's, a, it's a very unique skill. Anyway. Yeah, but I'm saying, but it's, he understood the importance of packaging. You got a sense, even in the later years, he understood the importance of speaking on video, of, of transmitting the Torah through multiple mediums. His podcast was one of the leading podcasts, the, the weekly Parsha podcast. He understood the importance of packaging. And I would say also, he, so he had this combination of, on the one hand, like you said, the ability to articulate truth. In, a, in an appealing way, using language, using examples from culture, from high culture, not low crass culture, but examples from literature and from the arts that people could immediately identify with that they had probably never heard of or never read, you know, that he was a such well-read person, okay? And he had a command of oratory and a command of language and speech that made you just stand there and say, oh, yeah, that's the guy. And I think that's something that, that so many people are feeling is missing, like the way you said, who's going to be the representative that will stand up in front of the world and be our model and say, this is someone I'm proud to say represents me. Because to all too often, it's really sad to say, but when we think of who represents orthodoxy in the world today, right, it's, not a, it's not a Kiddush Hashem. 
It's not something that articulates something I'm proud to stand behind and articulates what I believe in in a way that's, that's forward-thinking and positive, but something the world can understand. And that's a tremendous loss. And I, I have to say, I'm not a, I'm not a student of his writings. Uh, and and his, his, I, I, I think his, I, I don't, didn't have the perception that he was mechadesh in the sense of creating something new, a, a new philosophy. But he, like you said, things that I, I agree with, the idea of the family and, uh, and the focus on the self, he just said it in such a way that you're like, yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's what I meant. And that's something that I identify with. And that's a tremendous loss, like you said. Now, I'm going to let Johnny talk, and then I want to ask both of you another question. So I'll take, I'll say one thing, but for Ruby's point, I want to Mali, uh, both of you, I really appreciate what you said. Um, in, in terms of being Mechadesh, and again, I've, I've been lucky to teach his writings now for quite some years. I'd say the more I teach them, the more I like take a breath and say, that is phenomenal. I think he was a seamless Mechadesh. You don't realize the Chidushim that he's putting into words. You don't realize the biblical echoes that underpin some of the simplest of uh, poetic statements until you read them and you ponder them and you say that is magnificent and that's happened to me not just once or twice you guys know I quote him all the time because I I studied all these books and collected these quotes and used them in class and they became part of my vocabulary but there are ideas on so many pages of so many of his books which are, again, they're, they're seamless chidushim. And what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes in the Nasa Kalim, there'll be a finger pointing saying, I'm making a chidush. Well, he never did that. <laughs> but it's right there. Uh, and, and I could list probably uh, plenty now and, and probably do a whole study and another time. And he was a profoundly original thinker. But what he did was, he did it from the building blocks of ideas that we either did know or we probably should have known and so he empowered the audience such that they he took them from a place of familiarity to a place of newness without them feeling that they were being pushed instead they were being lifted so that's one thing i would say and, and in terms of mali's point um you kind of asked and truth is ruby you also asked about who's going to replace him and, and how did he have this extraordinary skill set. Well, no one's going to replace him. I mean, really, you can so say that. People. No one's going to replace him. That's obvious. Not in that way. And, and the, the answer, the, I'd say the answer. It's always a dangerous thing to say the answer. I'd say a, a, an answer is a following. And I say this from the deepest place in my heart, which is he loved people. And, and, and let me clarify what that means. And I have the Rambam in front of me. You know, the Rambam says, mm-hmm. And then it quotes, uh, he quotes the Mishnah, sorry. And then the Ramah goes on to say, uh, A teacher has got to care about their Talmidim. He's got to love them. Why? And then he goes on to say, How the Talmidim can also enrich the mind and, and the understanding of the teacher. Rabbi Sachs loved all those whom he taught, not just the people who were closest to him uh, or the slightly more distant Talmidim or just the communities. He loved every person he was speaking to. And, and you know I, how I know that? Because if you ever listen to a talk of his, and I listen to hundreds, 
uh, he'd always say the word friends. He wouldn't just say it once or twice. It would be a repeated term. That may sound cute, but he meant it. Because when he was talking to people, he was connecting to them, not just intellectually, but emotionally. He cared about them. He cared about their future. The reason why he spoke about Jewish continuity is because he cared about continuity. And so, whether you were 85, as we said, or 18, that level of, of concern, of, of interest, of love poured out. And as a result of that, he was heard because right? things that come from the heart go into the heart. He was emotionally intelligent in every word he said. And as a result of that, it had a huge impact on his very, very many uh, audiences. I'll say just one quick thing before I know you want to speak back. Last night, I was scheduled to give a talk in a series about the Torah, and I was supposed to be dwelling on the death of Moshe. That had been planned months ago, and I'd also planned to quote from Rabbi Sachs. Obviously, this bitter news uh, put a whole new layer of context. And I was speaking to a group of men and women in North America, students of Melton, right, who I, I, most of whom I don't have that much of a personal connection with. And I was reading the Psalm about Moshe and reflecting about Rabbi Sachs. And I can tell you two things. Number one is, I was crying like crazy. Number two is, so were they, men and women. People who were of very, very different levels of religious observance. They were pouring, pouring tears. Because it wasn't just, we've lost this brilliant person. It wasn't about his intellect. It's, we've lost somebody who, when he spoke, we knew he cared. When he wrote, he was speaking to us. That hasn't happened to many people for a very long time. And they all feel bereft, as I do. Uh, I want to turn the conversation a little bit and sort of focus on the uniqueness of Rabbi Sachs because I was involved in a sort of Facebook discussion following his passing that asked a very interesting question. He was very unique, like you said, maybe even a product of his generation. You know, the, the, real, the interesting question you could ask is, would Rabbi Sachs have become Rabbi Sachs if he grew up today? And the question we were assessing was, could a Rabbi Sachs-like figure develop in Israel today? Meaning, if you take all his gifts, his gift of oratory and knowledge and wisdom and combine it with philosophy and Torah and Chachmah and rabbinics, is there an opportunity for that kind of personality to develop in Israel, which is now the leading Jewish community in the world, the, the, the primary Jewish community in the world? Can it happen to, could it happen here or could it not happen here? I'm, I'm curious what you think. We'll start with Mali. And then Johnny, and then I'll, of course, tell you what I think, because that's what I do. Molly. It's uh, an interesting question. I, I saw that you asked the question. I didn't actually read the thread, so it's not like I'm coming informed by other people's opinions. I would say, I, I'm, I would say that I'm cautiously optimistic that yes. I don't know that I would have always said that. I think that in the past, Israel was kind of very parochial and narrow. But I think you're right. I think Israel's changing. Um, and I I'm think, right. I didn't say that. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm sorry. I think that that... that, that that it is possible. It is possible for Israel to produce a figure like that today. Um, and, and again, I, I feel like I always quote the same people, but like, uh, you know, I think Rav Shlomo is an example of somebody. Obviously, we don't have to talk about specific, specific people and pluses right, and right. minuses, but, but there you have a person who speaks to many people, a person who's extremely well-read. 
again, yes, there are differences between America and Israel and how much secular knowledge they have, but I think it's start. I think it is starting to happen. I think Israel is starting to become broader. And just interestingly, because we interviewed Rav Stav, and when I was speaking to my husband, he said, "You know that Rav Stav said that if you're going to be a rabbi, you you have to learn how to you, you need to learn English, because um, you have to learn how to communicate in the larger world." And that struck me very profoundly because we were saying, you know, his English is pretty good. Yeah. Um, and like that demonstrates that at least there are there are some rabbis who are starting to develop that awareness, right? That that um, if we if we are going to take ourselves seriously as a place from which wisdom will come, Torah in the broad sense, uh, I hope that, and I, I do think a movement is, is happening, like I, I do see like a development in Israeli thought. Um, it is becoming broader, it is becoming more um, philosophical, uh, it's becoming more world-informed. So, I, I, again, I, I will see. We'll see, you know, but I, I don't think the, the, the obstacle will be Israel. It's not fair to expect the, the knowledge of English and the command it, of the English language. That's not reasonable. Right, that's and what, again, like, so like I don't, I, and again, a person like that is so rare. It's a, it's, it's, it's a once in a generation type of a person. So I don't think Israel would be the obstacle. I think a personality like that is the obstacle. And I just want to end by saying that I, I, I feel like, Johnny, you just taught me something, a lesson to take away, which is I think that's a, that's a really profound message, which is if you want to be heard, Always remember to go back to the the caring and the love and the like connection to other people and the emotional intelligence. That's that's like a, like to me for me as a personal lesson. I thought uh, that was very meaningful, so I appreciate that. Johnny, um, so do you want do you want to tackle the yeah. question, or you're not interested? Um, I, I think I'm happy to tackle the question, but you presume that geography alone was a making of Rabbi Sachs, and I think that's not the case. I think. Uh, a, a drive, a determination, a vision, a mission uh, was the engine behind the making of a person and he harnessed the opportunities that he encountered and there would be different ones if he'd be here but uh, you know England didn't buy all the books on Rabbi Sachs' shelf he did and he read them, right? We didn't say have a conversation with these people he did and he had them and today, uh, in the technological age, it's never been easier to access information. It's never been easier to connect with people. So do I think that the refined attitude of somebody who was a, a lord in the House of Lords, right, who was uh, you know, celebrated by the royal family would happen here? Probably not, because those institutions don't exist in Israel. But do I think a person living in Israel or elsewhere who was driven by a mission, who has a passion for learning, who has a profound faith in God, who wishes to understand the world, who values people more than anything else, who wishes to grow people. Could that be done here? Yeah. So, um, and, and so uh, I believe that there are obviously features of who Rabbi Sachs, Sachs were, which were profoundly British. You know, when I was at his house, he'd be the one pouring the cups of tea in the bone china. Yeah, there's nothing more British than a chief rabbi pouring your tea, you know, on some kind of weekday afternoon. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of a lot of the qualities, not all, but a lot, they can be found in a person who hears that calling. Uh, but he wasn't asking people to be clones of him, right? He, a real leader tells people to become who they need to be. Uh, and what he would, though, say is, be thoughtful, right? As Rambam says, 
take wisdom forever it comes. And I think there's a lot of wisdom that can be found both here and elsewhere, and he would encourage us and urge us to do So the only thing I would say is, I, I agree with you, and somebody commented, yeah, Rav Steinsatz was developed in Israel, and he was unique. So if you're a unique person, you bring your unique gifts. But the thing, as a former pulpit rabbi, that I found that I think that catapulted him, in addition to his writings, was, was the spoken word, was the oratory. And he honed that gift that I've, obviously he had, but he honed it over years and years and decades of, of performative speech, I would call it, of drashot. And you get that good by being that good, by, by doing it over and you know, it's like the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours rule. And in Israel, that kind of talk, that kind of speech doesn't really exist. And so you can't expect someone to hone it and get really good at something that the world needs when they don't have the opportunity to develop that skill in a, in a real world setting and to tell the stories and to, the, you know, the rise of the tone and, you know, all of the things that make people want to hear a great lecture, want to hear a great talk. And to be honest with you, if you think about it, we live in the era of TED Talk. We want our messages given to us. You know, the, 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 even the clip that I shared was a minute and a half. He really, he got it to say the point in a soundbite. He, he, he could do that. And that doesn't exist today. Now, all you, in Israel, the culture encourages people to either shout over each other or to get another word in. And, and, uh, and that's very, it's very difficult to learn how to speak in a, in a moving and a profound way when you don't have the opportunity to develop, develop that in the system in which you're nurtured, the system in which you grow. So I, I don't know. Yeah. So can I, can, I, can I just tell you one quick thing? Because it's a story told by a very, very dear friend who goes back... Uh, to the youth of Rabbi Sachs. It's in uh, the Feshrift, Morashaki Lat Yaakov, uh, 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 in honor of Rabbi Sachs, and the introduction is written by my good friend Rabbi Michael Pollock. And he tells a story I hadn't read till then. I'll tell you the short version, and I'm happy to, to scan it or send it to our listeners. Because he says, uh, one of our earliest meetings, he and Rabbi Sachs, who, who knew each other, was a gathering of a group of rather pretentious young Orthodox men selected on the base of an alleged familiarity of Torah study and academic philosophy. And Rav, Rabbi Sachs was set to talk about Wittgenstein and the implication of his latter work on Jewish philosophy. And says my friend, Rabbi Michael Pollock, who is hilarious, but also highly smart, he said, I was puffers after 10 minutes, bamboozled within 20 and lost by half an hour mark. And then he says, I just imagined some crazy things and you know, kept my mind going. And then at some point, a questioner uh, raised his hand and started asking Rabbi Sachs a question in Yiddish. And Rabbi Sachs said, um, I'm sorry, I don't quite understand what you're talking about. And the guy said, well, now you know how we felt for the last 90 <laughs> minutes. And continue my good friend, Michael Pollock, never again did I hear Rabbi Sachs take an audience for granted. He says, every lecture, every shear was perfectly crafted for the moment, exquisitely constructed to achieve clarity and resonance, and entirely relevant to the audience before him. And I mention that not l'gnai chas v'shalom, it's l'shvach, like you say, because you know what? Nobody should think, you know, sometimes there are biographies that talk about people who are perfect from birth, yeah. right? Rabbi Sachs, as you say, he honed his skills. Yes, he had opportunities, but yes, he made opportunities. And yes, he got things right, and sometimes he got things wrong, and had, he'd have feedback. And when you look at his choice, what he figured out is to be a leader means to know what to do and what not to do. He discusses it in Lessons in Leadership. 
And I think what you see uh, in his life journey is a convergence of understanding what he's better at and, a, and, and also recognition of what perhaps is less uh, where he wishes to be. And he, he had a tremendous team around him. I just want to make note of Joanna Benarosh and Dan Saka, his team, because he did a lot of things, but he had people behind him because, as they say, every leader knows they have things that they need assistance with. And through that journey, he grew. And that's why I began with the story of his life journey, because Rabbi Sachs is a model to us all. Who we are doesn't need to be who we will be. We can grow, we can develop, we can adapt, and, and we can uh, expand our horizons. He did that in our midst, and, and his legacy is for us to do that for ourselves and future generations. Amen. What a beautiful uh, call to action, which I'm sure he, would, he wouldn't say it about himself, but he would wholeheartedly agree with. He said it. He actually said it. One of the things I saw last night was he started by quoting Shakespeare. Some men are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. He said, I was not born great. I did not achieve greatness, but I had greatness thrust upon me, as do all Jews. And then he went through this beautiful drasha about Judaism is the call to action. Um, and he basically said what Johnny just said. That, w that was his call to every Jew. He said, I did it. He didn't say that in so many words, but he basically said, you can do it and you should do it. So I think that's just when Johnny said that, I was like, how, how an appropriate way to end, because it's exa it was exactly the message he gave in such a profound, beautiful, moving okay. way. Okay. Well, we'll conclude with that. I want to thank uh, Rob Johnny Solomon for sharing your uh, personal stories and your thoughts, and uh, Robin Malibrovsky. My name is Ruven Spolter. This is RZ Weekly. If you have any comments or questions, please share them on the Facebook page. We always love hearing uh, from you. And, uh, and as always, I, I remind you to leave us a rating at the iTunes Apple Podcast app so more people learn about our podcast. Have a great week, everybody.